Hey, this is John Collins from The Bible Project. In the last two weeks of this podcast, we've been discussing the theme of generosity in the storyline of the Bible, how God is the generous host of all creation, and there's enough for everyone. So why don't we live that way? The first few chapters of Genesis show humanity's propensity to mistrust the generous host. We want to protect ourselves, and we think we have the best strategy for how to do that. Unfortunately, our self-protection leads us to shame, broken relationships, and violence. So what's God going to do? Well, it turns out his plan is to ramp up his generosity. It's God choosing one family to give the supreme gift. I'm going to choose one family and give them like the ultimate gift. In fact, the gift I'm trying to give all humanity, I'm just going to give to one family and do something with this family that will restore the gift to everybody else. But here's the problem. So far in the Bible, the portrait of humans isn't very flattering. No one has been able to trust the generous host. So today, we look at the successes and failures of the family of Abraham in their calling to extend God's generosity to others. Thanks for joining us. Here we go. Okay, we've been talking about generosity as a theme. Yes. And you're going to walk us through the story of the Old Testament mm. through the lens of generosity. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or a way to think about key moments in the storyline through the yeah the lens of gift giving mm. and how people respond when they're given great gifts and parties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you respond when you have been given a great gift? And the mm-hmm. way we've you've set this up, which is really nice, is mm. that God's economy essentially, as He's as He's created the world, is one of of generosity. If you are a person who has spent a lot of time meditating on the scriptures like Jesus was, Mm. you get, you get this radical Mm. uh, sense of living in uh, a place that's hosted with generosity. Yeah. Yeah. Every day you're met with many gifts. Yeah. (laughs) Which is, which is a great abundant way to look at the world. Yeah. Some might, some might say naive, Mm. Sure. But if you believe in a generous God who created, it would make sense. Yeah, yeah. We, we, you watch the squirrel gathering nuts, and you you see abundance, and you see God sharing life and goodness with that creature. Yeah. And just the same as when you sit down for a good meal with people that you like mm. or love, hopefully both. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, God, the generous host, yes. is then the setting. But then we talked about the mm. problem of... Yes. Evil. Mm. And the problem caused by abundance or the potential problem. The potential problem with yeah. abundance. Yeah. The liability. <laughs> the liability of, of abundance, abundance is yeah. it makes you want to then, for mm. whatever reason, mm. protect mm. and store up mm-hmm. and fight mm-hmm. others for yeah. your portion of the abundance. That's right. But under that is a scarcity mindset. Um, mm-hmm. that enters in to say, maybe there's not actually enough. Maybe there's not actually enough. And so that was our, our way. It's a new way of looking at what the snake says to the woman. Mm. God can't be trusted as yeah, a generous Yeah, God can't host. be trusted. Yeah, remember he says, uh, so you can't eat from any tree mm. here. He's like, yeah. Which is the exact the opposite. The generous host said I could eat from any tree. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, but it enters the idea like, oh, maybe... Oh, well, I guess there is that one tree we're not supposed to eat from. Yeah, and why is that? Can I actually trust? Then you fixate on that as opposed to the much that has been provided. That's the strategy at work in that conversation. And we talked about that tree symbolizing the problem of... The choice. 
Yeah, the choice. How are you gonna How are you gonna handle abundance? Correct. That's right. How are you gonna handle yeah. an abundant gift? Yeah, it requires great moral discernment and yeah. ethical discernment, knowing good and evil, to know what to do in response. And you can ground your definitions of good and evil in your own wisdom, mm. or you can surrender them to a, a higher wisdom. And then we talked about how um, in the Cain and Abel story, mm-hmm. God was showing favor. Mm-hmm. When I was thinking about that, it seemed like God was being more generous. Mm-hmm. And, um, and actually, you know, we discussed that, and yeah, it was we helpful. Yeah. We I actually said. just realized I forgot one of the most key things I discovered about yeah. <laughs> that story yeah. that I don't think we've ever talked about. Oh, yeah. Tell me. It actually has to do with, you have to look at all of Genesis 4. Which is the Cain and Abel story. Yep, all, the Cain and Abel story, and then the city that he builds, and the violent mm. poets, the oh. uh, Lamech, who you know murders a man. Okay. So the, there's two large halves, two large panels to Genesis four, uh-huh. and it's punctuated by an opening statement, a center transition statement between the two halves, and then mm-hmm. a concluding, and all those three are coordinated. Hmm. Adam knew his wife, mm-hmm. and she became pregnant. And you get the story of Cain and Abel. Then you have Cain knew his wife, mm-hmm. leading to seven generations, the building of his city, and leading up to Lamech, the violent warrior. Mm-hmm. And he's not good. And then it ends with saying, and Adam knew his wife again mm-hmm. and bore a new son that replaces the murdered son. The new second born. The new, yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, the new second born who is treated like the firstborn. <laughs> yeah, the new second born is treated yeah, like the firstborn. In, yeah, Seth. So, um, but what's important is that in the opening and final notices, Eve speaks Mm. about uh, her sons. And uh, her posture is very different in these two statements. Uh, And this is often true in birth accounts in the Hebrew Bible. The the circumstances of the naming and the names given are always packed with word plays Mm. and puns Mm. connected to the story. Helps you see the meaning. So in the first one, she says she names her son Cain. That's Cain in Hebrew. Yeah. Uh, because she says Kaniti Ish et Adonai. Kaniti is the same letters as the Cain. name Cain or Cain. Mm. And the word Kaniti is a little, whole long debate here. It's a related word uh, for create. Um, it can mean acquire, but in, in certain contexts, it primarily means create. And so. What she seems to say, there's actually probably about two or three possible ways to translate that, and I think that's on purpose. This is the is this uh, verse one. Verse one. This is what Eve says. Yeah. So our, most translations are going to say, "I've acquired." NIV says, "I've brought forth oh, a okay. man," and then in the footnote says, "I have acquired." So yeah, this is super nerdy. We're already <laughs> taking too much time on okay. this. <laughs> it's one of the standard words for create to bring into my possession by making. Hmm. In Proverbs 8, this is what God does to creation. Hmm. He canaws it. Canaws. It's the same verb. What seems to happen, be happening is that she is equating herself with Yahweh as the creator of man. Oh, wow. I've created a man. Hmm. You won't get that from most English translations. If you dive into in the history of Jewish interpretation of this line, hmm. they understood what was going on here. Hmm. This is a similar song of boasting that Lamech is going to hmm. give later on. In, she says, the with chapter. the help of the Lord, I've created yeah, a man. Exactly. So that's also every single word of this line. The only word that has a clear meaning is the word man. <laughs> 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 so 
So there's four Hebrew words and uh-huh. three out of the oh, four that, this are is, extremely problematic. This is four Hebrew words. It's four Hebrew words. So you could translate her line as, I have created a man. Mm-hmm. And then the next word is the preposition with, which, which has a really flexible meaning depending on context. Mm-hmm. And so depending on how you interpret what's going on here, um, one of its common uses is in comparative statements. So we've talked about Cain and Abel so long. So much, And yeah. I realize I've never a new told you this thing okay. that I found. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. So uh, that word with, it's et in Hebrew, it's commonly used in comparison statements. For example, in the Ten Commandments, don't make any gods with me, literally in Hebrew. Don't have any gods with me. Namely, don't have any gods in comparison with me. Mm. Exodus 20, verse 22. So in English, we don't use with that way. We don't. But in Hebrew, you can. in Hebrew, you can. Yeah. In Genesis 39, Potiphar left all of his belongings Mm. in the care of Joseph, and he didn't know anything with Joseph. (laughs) He didn't know anything with Joseph. In comparison with Joseph. Oh, okay. He put Joseph over basically facilities and maintenance and <laughs> doing the books yeah. for his property. And he didn't know anything about yeah. his own property anymore in, with Joseph in comparison with Joseph. So it's a Hebrew way. It's a Hebrew word to, to in say comparison in comparison. With, or right. alongside. So on that reading, what she's saying is, look, Yahweh created all things. Mm-hmm. I have created a man along with or in comparison with Why does NIV have the Yahweh? word help? They're interpreting what they think the meaning of of with with is there. Literally in Hebrew, it's, I have created a man with the Lord. I see. That's what it literally reads. So it could be, I've created a man with the help of the Lord. With the aid of the Lord. Or I have created a man Mm -hmm. in comparison to the Lord. That's right. Problem is, with the help of is never... There's other Hebrew prepositions. There's actually multiple words for with in Hebrew uh, to indicate... Like agency or ins- like that kind of help okay. or agency, and et is not. It's not that one. Oh, it's actually never used that way. Okay. Okay. So if she's making a comparison, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what then is the significance of that? The significance is you have someone. Well, here let me just. Uh, this is Umberto Casuto, an Italian mm. Jewish commentator okay. from mid 1900s. His paraphrase is two pages unpacking. Anyway, he says the first woman. In her joy at giving birth to her first son, boasts of her generative power. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of power. Create a human in your body. Yeah. Which, in her estimation, approximates the divine creative power. Yeah. The Lord formed the first man, Mm -hmm. Genesis 2-7, and I have formed the second man. Literally, I have created a man with the Lord, by which she means, I stand together equally with the Creator in the rank of creators. Hmm. So why I think that's significant, actually it's relevant for our conversation, is it, it's a portrait of a human whose existence is a gift mm-hmm. to them and whose power to do anything productive, to create, yeah. is itself a gift. But the psychology of the gift is that you can forget, you can begin to take for granted the thing that you've been given mm. and treat it as if it's yours. Mm. And that's what we're supposed to be seeing here. I, I think that's what we're supposed to be seeing because... Can I think of any stories in the rest of the book of Genesis mm-hmm. where you have humans who take for granted the divine gifts and opportunities they've been given, make stupid decisions, and what God does is flip their world upside down? Because they, take, they took the mm-hmm. gift for granted. Yeah, totally. And think of 
let's go with the firstborn son theme. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Can I think of any stories where people are irresponsible trying to choose or create mm. sons, trying to create a family. Yeah. And it's yeah, actually... Jacob and Esau would be a main one, right? Yeah, totally, right? The favoritism yeah. between... Uh, but also Abraham and and Sarah mm. and Hagar. Yeah. Right? And so... Oh, like, I'm going to take this in my own hands and make mm-hmm. a firstborn yeah, son. Yeah, Sarah, myself. right? Sarah, they try to create their own promised son. Yeah. And so they abuse Hagar in the process and generate a firstborn who Sarah then hates mm. <laughs> and rejects. Yeah. It's going to happen again in the Joseph story. Genesis 4 is actually setting up for us the first act Mm. of screwed up parents (laughs) who distort the gift of uh, uh, reproduction, of productivity Hmm. that they're given. And then what God promptly does is turn upside down the normal order of things. And so he, he chooses, favors the gift of the second born and not the first. So you think there's a direct narrative link between Eve's kind of uh, her own yeah. psychology in this and the choosing of the second born. I think it's a, it's part of how the story is designed. Yeah. That once you read through the whole book of Genesis and you realize every time parents act in arrogance, right, or pride or favoritism, God promptly works in their life to upend their whole value system and bring about the opposite of what they hoped for. In the language of Paul, it's God turning human wisdom into foolishness hmm. and using foolishness to shame the wise, Hmm. this upending of human value systems. And another detail in the chapter that confirms this is Eve's, the last line of the chapter is Eve has another son. Mm -hmm. Seth. Mm -hmm. Seth. And if you look at her response, how she names, uh, Adam knew his wife again. And she gave birth to a son. This mimics the opening line of Genesis 4. What verse is this? Uh, Chapter 4, verse 25. Okay. She gave birth to a son, and she named him Seth, saying, God has sethed me. (laughs) The word seth means to grant or to set. Okay. So God has granted me another child in the place of Abel since Cain killed him. Yeah. So here she explicitly puts herself in the recipient role. Okay. The son is not something I created. Huh. It's something that God has given me as a gift. So she gets it this time. She gets it this time. So there's a transformation in her own character in the course of the chapter. This is the Jacob story in miniature in one chapter. Yeah, explain that because... Oh, a mother and a son. Uh Uh-huh. And the mother... Favors. Yeah, but the mother wants to, what Rebecca wants to do mm-hmm. is secure the divine blessing for herself through human scheming. Mm. And the whole thing is a replay of Genesis 3. It's like with this deceptive food <laughs> and Isaac is blind. His eye, It's the opposite of Genesis 3 where your eyes will be opened when you eat. Oh. And here his eyes are closed because mm. he's blind and it's all about this deceptive food. Mm. And Jacob and his mom are the deceivers. They're in the mm. role of the snake. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. That's all fascinating. these hyperlinks going on there. And the whole point is that it, once Rebecca uh, has tried through human scheming to get her own blessing, mm-hmm. introduces ruin into the family. And so God promptly just upends the whole system. And it, that's what sends Jacob into exile for 20 years, hmm. where he gets deceived by his uncle. And anyway. Yeah. So Genesis is amazing. Yeah. But once you read through Genesis, you come back to Genesis 4, and you see a mom boasting of her power to create Mm. a man. Now, I would be boastful of the ability to co-rule with God. 
Yeah, like, that's, that's right. That's pretty yeah. legit. Yeah, that's right. But that's not what she's doing. On a, a possible and I think likely translation and interpretation of her words, we're meant to see her opening words in contrast yeah. to her concluding words. Okay. Her concluding words are, God has granted me as a gift another child. Her opening words are, I have created a man in comparison with Yahweh. Or now, there's this, whole, there's this whole firstborn, secondborn theme mm-hmm. that's also weaving through here. Yes. So how is that connected to then this theme you're picking up on of, and I think the way you summarized it was, a human trying to... Achieve their own blessing. Achieve their own blessing. Well, yes, I think in Genesis 1... God grants the gift of blessing, abundance, Mm. and it's connected to essentially like reproduction, fill the earth, Mm. right? Fill Mm -hmm. the earth and do it. Uh, That's part of the blessing. So actually farming and family. Yeah. (laughs) Abundant farming with a responsive piece of land Mm. that grows lots of crops Mm -hmm. and then abundant children with Mm. responsive male and female bodies Mm. i mean they're they're paired Mm. in terms of generativity and productivity yeah and so both of those are the gift and the blessing and so what you see in genesis primarily is humans every generation is scheming Mm. to create their own blessing instead of trusting that god will give them the blessing as a as a pure gift and how's that connected to the firstborn, secondborn theme? Oh, because the firstborn son represents the first moment of the blessing of of children. Children are a gift, a gift, the blessing. But, but, but God continually chooses the secondborn. Oh, in response to how the humans distort the gift. So, so she gets pregnant and has a son, and instead of saying first, "Oh, God has given me the son," she says, "I created a human." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so God is, chooses the secondborn because of humans' inclination to always primarily distort try to gift. use their f- yeah. firstborn to mm-hmm. distort the gift. Mm-hmm. And then that's, that's connected to the idea of using the weak to mm-hmm. shame the strong, using mm-hmm. the foolish that's to right. shame the wise. That's right. Because it's, the secondborn is the weaker. And secondborn, the, that's right. So, in, in the so sense of... In that culture, in that culture and socially, yeah. that's right. Yeah. The secondborn is not as favored if, as the first. If you're going to protect your your family generationally, yes. you hook yeah. up your firstborn. That's right. You give them double inheritance. They represent mom and dad. Yeah. And they're the first incarnation of the it, next generation, so to speak. That's interesting in that, so if family and childbearing is one of the mm-hmm. ways that God showed his generous abundance. Correct, yeah, that's right. Then it's interesting to think about then the system that mm. we would create mm-hmm. to benefit one person in oh, that family yeah, sure. over the rest. It actually kind of feels like a type of hoarding and a type mm. of mm, scarcity mentality yeah. Yeah. in a way. Yeah, and it's funny because there's a law in Deuteronomy that says, you know, the firstborn is the one who should always get the double inheritance. And hmm. this kind it's of actually thing. written into the Torah. It's written into the laws of the Torah, and yet God is the one subverting that <laughs> principle <laughs> in every single generation of the book of Genesis. Yeah. <laughs> the Bible. Weird. Yeah, and I think, I think it's actually, it's, it's as if that law in Deuteronomy is winking at you. Huh. Because the law, like a lot of the laws, as Paul says in Romans 7, yeah. like it's a good point, but what humans do with uh, that good thing is super screwed up. And so what God's doing with every generation of Genesis and the firstborn is subverting human wisdom yeah. and human practice and, and so on. Mm-hmm.
Anyhow, so I forgot to say that in our last conversation about Cain, mm. but it's relevant to our theme of people receiving a gift and immediately attributing it to their own power and wisdom. So in and, this, we're supposed to see Eve it. receiving the gift of childbearing. Mm-hmm. It's a really powerful, beautiful gift. Yes. And for her, her first inclination is, I'm going to use this to hook myself up mm. and seize blessing for myself. Yeah, or attribute to myself the power to make the gift. When in fact, it's like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, what do you have that you haven't been given? And if you've been given it, why do you boast as if it's yours? <laughs> mm. It always is confusing when you read the narrative of Cain and Abel of why God favors Cain over Abel. Correct. This is the first narrative logic I've heard yeah. to explain it. Uh, yep. It occurred to me sometime in the last six months, and then I went hunting in the interpretation history, and lo and behold. Oh, I thought you were going to say you literally went hunting, and I was out in the woods, and I was oh. thinking about this. <laughs> I was about to shoot an elk. And it occurred to me. No, my version of hunting (laughs) is to go to my library. (laughs) I was like, what did you go hunting? Uh, Yeah, no, it turns out this is a Jewish readers. This has occurred to Jewish readers for thousands of years. Hmm. Because that's an interpretive tradition that really honors the cyclical design pattern nature of Genesis. And so later generation story is unfolding things that were already laid there in seed form in the earlier generations. I want to understand the significance of this. <laughs> and I think we're, we're there. I just want to make sure I get it. Yeah. We're talking about generosity. God's a generous host. Mm-hmm. He wants to give everyone blessing. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't want this abundance to make the humans decide to define good and evil on their own terms and then misuse the abundance. Yeah. And that's represented in this idea of the, of the choice of the eating of the tree. Correct. Um, and what we find is that the human inclination is to actually do that thing. That's right. And, and there's two features. One is the fear of a scarcity mindset yeah. that enters in that then motivates hoarding and, for and me and my tribe. And a mistrust of the host. And a mistrust of the host. Mistrusting the host leads to maybe there's not enough. Yeah. Leads to I need to store up some for myself and if it's at your expense I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And then it and then that's winking at you in Genesis four. And then it's you're because watching it in action. In Genesis 4. Because you're supposed to see Eve yeah. doing the same kind of thing. Right. Having the uh, not trusting the host. Yeah, or it's actually almost a step forward where it becomes a fourth thing mm. in that humans forget that their very existence ah, and generative power is a gift. And you begin to think it's actually you and yours, that you're the one in control mm. and that this is your stuff and your power to make it. What I really loved about the parable we were discussing last time yeah. was I had this mental picture of mm. going into the pool house where the people were hoarding yeah. the food, yeah. showing up at the party and being like, guys, what's going on? Yeah. And for them just to to, to logically mm. explain it to you, yes. well, there's a bunch of food here, but we don't know... We don't know if we can trust the host is actually going to keep giving it. Keep giving it. Yeah. It makes sense for mm. us to mm. make sure that we're taken care of, mm-hmm. the people that I love the most. Mm-hmm. And so we got to figure out how to do that in our mm-hmm. best way we know how. And this is mm-hmm. the best way we know how. Mm-hmm. And it's not that bad. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then the, the Genesis 4 step would be enough time goes by. Yeah. That you've forgotten you're in somebody else's house. <laughs> and that the original stuff that you got is somebody else's food mm. that they gave you. You begin to think it's yours and yeah. that you made it. Well, because you can go in the kitchen and make more too. Yeah. Or made, yeah. That's the idea. Is that's And now you think Genesis it's like your four. kitchen and it's your like, food. Yeah, it's my place and my energy. And I formed a human alongside Yahweh. Yeah. That's what, yeah. That's the point. 
Like, I'm throwing this party now. Right. And again, the way you get that reading of Genesis 3 and 4 is actually by reading the whole rest of the Hebrew Bible and then coming back and yeah. you'd be like, ah, I see what's going on here. Because so, every one of these steps is going to get repeated in all of the stories to follow in the Hebrew Bible and developed even more. So God's seeming favoritism, to mm. kind of come back, because yes. the favoritism yeah, yeah. is hard to deal with mm. if you come from a sense of, let's be fair. God, can you be fair? Yeah, sure. It seems like you could have blessed both Cain and Abel. Mm. Mm-hmm. And God says that there is exaltation for Cain. Yeah. If he does the right thing. Yeah, the plan is to make sure that mm-hmm. everyone yeah. has a place at yeah. the table. But he is choosing one to be the vehicle through whom he's And gonna... he's choosing one yeah. to do that to thwart the inclination Correct. of the human heart, yeah. which is to yes. scheme and hoard That's and right. devise your That's own right. plan. And so it begins a whole separate motif that should be in its own theme video we've talked about. The is first God word, second word. choosing the unlikely one to be the vehicle of his purpose in the world. Yeah. Specifically the weak, the poor, the rejected. He has a special pleasure in exalting them in his purpose. Is what gets him killed. Yeah. (laughs) God's election is what ends up causing the suffering of the righteous, so to speak. Which makes you think maybe that wasn't the smartest move. Well, if you have have humans around. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, So as we wave goodbye to Genesis 4, we have a portrait of humans who don't know what to do with God's many gifts. They attribute the gifts to their own power, like Eve, or like Cain and his descendant Lamech. They, in their selfishness, take life, take the lives of others. Mm -hmm. Cain kills Abel. Lamech kills some unnamed person Mm. (laughs) that he sings a song about. And so you walk away just going, oh, no, this is those people in the pool room yeah. are violent and short-sighted, and oh, this is not going well. And so we've been through Genesis 3 to 11 many times. So I just want to land us with the Babylon story and observe something similar uh, that we saw in, in the story of Eve and Cain and Abel, mm-hmm. and then that'll launch us into Abraham. So Genesis 3 to 11 gives us a spiral, all these portraits of humans and spiritual beings in rebellion. Yeah. We don't have to go down that rabbit hole today. The crowning story is the building of the city of Babylon Mm -hmm. in Genesis 11. Yeah. Look what we can do. That's right. And it's very similar, just like Eve took the first part of that blessing Mm. of generativity, you know, be fruitful and multiply. Yeah. She attributes it to herself, Mm. right? Her ability. In Genesis 11... The thing about go out and fill the earth, that part of the blessing. Um, What you see here is people saying, hey, let's build a city and a tower or else we'll be scattered all out there. We'll all be out there. So it's another effort of humans instead of the propensity of life is to go out. Mm -hmm. But they want to focus the Mm -hmm. blessing and harness its power for themselves in one place Mm -hmm. as one people, so to speak. Right. And it's connected to their desire to let us make for ourselves a name. And that for ourselves, it's 
the people in the pool room again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's protect ourselves. Let's protect ourselves, and let's use the resources that we've forgotten they're a gift, and now create a, a new pool room <laughs> <laughs> that has our name on it. Yeah. Because it's ours. Yeah. It's all ours. Yeah. And it's about us and our. And this whole story is a parody of Babylon and yeah. its exaggerated claims okay. about itself. This is, this is an Israelite parody on yeah. the the self-aggrandizing claims of Babylon. Yeah, this is uh, like a political humor in <laughs> a way. Of, yeah, it kind of is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, many layers to the story. It's, it's similar in that it's a portrait of humans having forgotten that their existence is a gift, yeah. their ability to reproduce is a gift. Because if you're an Israelite during the exile to Babylon or before yeah, and kind of worrying about the superpower— to explain it that way of like, look what happens yes. when yeah, that's right. humanity has yeah. this inclination to, to misuse power mm-hmm. because they're misunderstanding abundance. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. But here on the scale of an empire, it's almost like a diagnosis of the liability of abundance on a corporate empire yeah. terms. What's happening in Babylon is what happens to every human heart. Yeah. Eve's self-aggrandizing mm-hmm. <laughs> of her power to create a human is a micro form, and Babylon is the macro form mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Look at what we can do for our name mm-hmm. in our power. Yeah. And so God's response again is to do something very similar. He upends the thing by bringing about what they fear, which is to scatter them and decentralize their power. You know, it's tough from uh, mm. this perspective in human history in which we have already scattered the globe and now there's mm. kind of this new trend of urbanization. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Like God's command to spread out yeah. and multiply. Yeah. Yeah, it just doesn't it doesn't uh, yeah, register it, as much. That's true. Yeah. In a global age, we almost have to take our solar system as like the next frontier <laughs> to, right. to try and recreate the mindset. Of a time when being a human on Earth, it was perceived that just the land itself is an undiscovered frontier. Yeah. Like, what would it be like to have that Uh, mindset? Well, that's probably similar to how we perceive the solar system right now. Oh, my goodness. It's out there. You're blowing my mind. Oh, really? Well, you're giving a you're giving a, like a a biblical foundation for like space colonies. <laughs> oh, totally. Why not? I love it. Be fruitful totally. and multiply. Fill the universe and subdue it. <laughs> Fill the universe. Uh, how, t- tell me that's not a logical extension. It totally is a logical extension of the extension biblical narrative. Of the biblical narrative. It's, you're saying, oh man, you're I, saying Mars colonies. Oh, dude, are I'd be on a SpaceX rocket for sure, going out the be on a Mars colony if it were possible. You know, I would a, love that. A That'd good friend of mine who was a, uh, a mentor in my life for a long time, we were talking about sci-fi books and mm. the things we would want to write. And he said he had this sci-fi story idea of basically you're living in new creation mm. and your job is just to explore and expand into the universe, space oh, exploration. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I was like, and that was the first time I ever even thought about... Putting those together. Well, even you know, when you think about... Um, a new creation and mm. new life in a new earth. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. what are yeah. the categories? You, totally. Yeah. And then all of a sudden to like be thinking about space exploration as part of that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds awesome. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah isn't that how uh, in the Narnia series in the in, after the last battle, the further up and further in, mm. they're just running on into the new creation. Mm. Endless discovery. Endless it's discovery. Like, yeah, it's like the last few pages. It's yeah. beautiful. That's cool. Okay. Anyway, the point is we're trying to recreate what's a modern equivalent of 
the undiscovered frontier. Yeah. But no, we don't want to go there. Let's centralize here for ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves and yeah. accrue power and honor and self-glory and that kind of stuff. That's the mm. portrait of Babylon. Mm. So here's what's wonderful. Well, I guess if you're a Babylonian, it's not wonderful. <laughs> God scatters Babylon. That's his response. And then what he does in the next story is uh, call one family that's generated out of that region, mm-hmm. out of the scattering of that region, right? The family of Shem, right on down, and it leads to Abram. Mm-hmm. And then in the opening lines of Genesis 12, and many readers have caught this link here, it's God choosing one family to give the supreme gift. So humanity from Eve to Babylon, just they're abusing the gift. Yeah. I'm going to choose one family and give them like the ultimate gift. In fact, the gift I'm trying to give all humanity, I'm mm. just going to give to one family mm-hmm. and do something with this family that will restore the gift to everybody else. Yeah. That's the meaning of the opening words to Abraham in Genesis mm. 12. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives and from your father's house. So leave your your social web. Yeah. Your, leave leave the known. Yeah, leave your this is your ancient life insurance. <laughs> yeah. Was your extended family. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Ancient healthcare. <laughs> yeah, everything. Was everything. Was your extended family. Yeah. So leave your whole framework for security mm. and meaning and go to the land I'll show you. Mm-hmm. There I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. It's Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. I'll make your name great. I'll give you the great name. Mm. And so that contrast between... I'll give it to you. Yeah. You don't need to go yeah. find it and take you don't it. You have to make it for yourself. You don't have to make it for yourself. I want to give it. I'm trying to give it to you. Oh. This is the party host coming to the pool party, <laughs> being like, these people don't get it. So I will just choose a random person at the party and give them what I'm trying to give to everybody else. If I can get yeah. one family to yeah. understand a, an abundant gift, yep. yes. then that's how it can start. Yep. Start with one family. So he gives to one no-name person, so mm-hmm. to speak, mm-hmm. the great name that Babylon was trying to create for itself. Mm. So it's very similar to Genesis 4 in the Eve stuff. Mm. She's trying to attribute divine power to her own abilities to create the blessing. Mm. And so God upends that. But then in his generosity, gives her another son in return. Here, it's God gives the no-name <laughs> a great name to shame the wise who want to create a name for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Genesis 11 and 12 create this neat kind of portrait. It's mm. worth a long walk and a cup of tea <laughs> to, to think about that. And then you keep reading. Okay. And so I'm going to bless you and make your name great. Why? And you will be a blessing. That is to others. Yeah. I'll bless those who bless you. The one who treats you as cursed, I'll curse. And in you, all families on the land will find blessing. Mm. This thing will snowball. It's going to snowball. That's the whole point. 
And then matching that a few verses later, Abram goes to the land. Mm -hmm. And then God says, to your descendants, I will give this land. Mm. So he's giving a a name. He's giving the abundance of the blessing of family. And he's giving a land. It's the same gift given on page one. Mm. Blessing with abundance a family, family and land, and, mm. uh, except now it's just one human family out of out of all the others. Mm. So this the it's the generosity theme of Genesis one now uh, being reapplied in the new post Babylon world. Yeah, and so what is Abraham going to do with this abundant gift? Correct. You've watched all these other people not do well. Yeah, <laughs> with the gift. So what's Abraham going to do? Yeah, that's the fingernail biting tension. <laughs> if you don't have to wait long. You don't. Actually, it's the next story is his failure, <laughs> his first failure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he tries to seize the gift <clears throat> himself. The next story is there's a famine in the land. Hmm. Is there you know, that's be, interesting. Is there going to be enough? Is right? there going to be enough? It's a test of his trust that there will be enough, even though it seems like there's not enough. Some days there's not enough. Yes. And that's the, t- that's the tough thing that keeps going through the back of my mind as yeah. we're talking about this. Yeah. God is a generous host. Yes. God can be trusted. Okay. Mm-hmm. But some days there's not enough. Some days. Yeah. That's, or some years. Yeah. The land doesn't Some people experience a lifetime. Of not enough. Of not enough. Totally. And that's what, all the way back to that teaching of Jesus that we started with, that's part of the, as you're listening to Jesus, Look yeah. at the raven and yeah. the flowers and be like, there's enough. Yeah. God's generous. And you're like, oh, is there really enough? Correct. Yeah. Because there's a lot of suffering. Yes, there is. Connected to the lack of resources. Yes. Connected mm-hmm. to not having enough. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the biblical portrait of why there's not enough in reality, I think is, is fairly nuanced. Hmm. Sometimes it's human caused. Yep. Hoarding. Right. <laughs> or not sharing. Yeah. Injustice. Injustice. And then sometimes it's because of tohu vavohu, chaos. Yeah. The creation, we're in creation 1.0. But wasn't Eden full on good creation in in the narrative logic? Correct. That's right. Yeah. Eden is a spot of complete abundance and divine gift. But Eden is just one spot in the land. And uh, I think that's why... Earth got downgraded, is what well, you're saying. Well, what's more, it, it's actually similar to the logic of Abraham. God chooses one spot to start with, yeah. the garden. Hmm. And then he appoints the humans to join him in, in filling the land hmm. and spreading the garden. Yeah, and that's why there's, there's such a narrative link between the garden and the promised land. Correct. Is because it's, correct. it's the same idea. Let's, give, let's start yeah. it somewhere. That's right. Yeah, Abraham start the abundance and his family in the promised somewhere. land is... An iteration of the first humans in Eden. And the point is, do well here, multiply, fill the land, it will spread mm-hmm. if you trust my definition of good and evil. Mm. But of course they don't. But here, I want to come back because your point's a good one. Sometimes there's actually not enough. Yeah. The, the ground doesn't produce. Right. That was God's sad warning in Genesis 3 to mm. the humans after they're banished from the garden. Mm. Remember, it's what he says. You're going to work the toil. It's going to yeah. suck. Yeah. It's going to, it's going to, the grounds won't yield its strength to you easily, thistles and thorns, and then you'll die. Go <laughs> oh, back. Gosh. But God's on a mission to recreate the garden. That's the whole point of the story. Yeah. And so, yeah, the lack of abundance that Abraham experiences becomes a test. I just feel this tension between <clears throat> the guys, we live in a universe yes. hosted by a generous God. Yeah. And, Sometimes there's not enough. Sometimes there's not enough. Yeah. It just feels really at odds to me. I hear that. It is. I I think you're right. I think it's a tension. The whole biblical narrative is 
working out. Hmm. For the simple reason that within uh, the view of the world, within the biblical view of the world, like in the creation poems that we saw about the well-ordered creation, there is still the chaotic sea out there that hmm. will kill you. Hmm. There's still Leviathan and Behemoth yeah. right, from Job. And there's still earthquakes and famines, things that will kill people hmm. that are a part of the world. And these two are... At this stage of the story, those are still two realities in God's world. Yeah. Because God could have, I mean, as a thought experiment, I suppose, <clears throat> God could have just started with new creation. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, mm-hmm. he started with Tohu Vavohu, mm-hmm. creates a spot mm-hmm. of generosity mm-hmm. with, and then with co-rulers mm-hmm. to work with him to mm-hmm. spread that. Mm-hmm. And that strategy is what got us into this mm. place. <laughs> yeah, right. That he's yeah. recreating yeah. through Jesus. Yeah, that's right. It's like his obsession to co-rule with us. That's right. That's driving this. Yeah. Like he wants humans, desperately wants us to yes mature. Yeah, into that. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, the higher value is that humans mature mm. to become the glorious co-rulers that yeah. he purposed for them to be, and that way of then framing post-Eden, the whole Mm -hmm. post-Eden experience of goodness and horror, of abundance and lack. Mm. This is all the testing grounds for maturing humans to become what uh, he destined them to be. And then the point of the biblical story is, yeah, and we we don't do it. Mm. We can't do it. That's the point of the incarnation, I think. And but then then the other but the other point of the incarnation is mm. now we can do it. Yeah. So you have Jesus walking around talking as if he's living in Eden. <laughs> There's enough. The kingdom of God enough is here. For the oh, ravens, that's true. Enough for the... It's oh, like wow. Jesus believes yeah. that the kingdom of God has really come, yeah. arrived. Yeah. And so... And he wants you to act that way too. He wants you to foster that mindset that even though it's not always reality as we experience it, the ultimate reality and future destiny is of the life of Eden permeating earth. So let's start living as if that's true right now. Hmm. Which makes you look like a radical, countercultural kind yeah. of person. Or stupid. <laughs> or stupid. Right? Yeah. Right? The ways that we're objecting yeah. to Jesus' teaching. Yeah. Or naive. Naive. It yeah. sounds stupid. Yeah. What do you mean there's enough? There's not enough. Yeah. <laughs> I was suffering yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Totally. I mean, and, it's not hard to, to stack up arguments yeah. against Jesus saying there's enough for yeah. the ravens and the flowers and for you. Yeah. You're like, there's not enough. And I think Jesus would have a lot more to say, but he's at least trying to mess with you. Mess with your categories. And for Jesus, it's not like some like life hack where mm. now all of a sudden you're going to have an amazing, mm. abundant life. No, no. He got killed. Yeah, and he was homeless. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. Yes. Yeah. 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 But, uh, he, but he lived. He lived. He fostered this. And, and life came out from around him. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So this is important. I think in the video... We want to capture all these tensions yeah. of like the generous kinds of humans that live by this story mm-hmm. believe in the abundance mindset. Yeah. But they also are able to look squarely in the face the lack of abundance created by humans and created by just chaos chaotic and, world. and death and all that and the finite resources of, our, of the land. And yet still looking at all that, trust that uh, the new Eden has broken in. In Jesus, and that there is enough. And that ultimately... And ultimately, there will be enough. There will be enough. And so I'm going to choose to live like that in the present. And choosing to live like that in the present is the best kind of life you can have. Yeah. 
Yeah. Life that is truly life. Correct. That's why Jesus, I think, talks so much about money <laughs> and generosity. Because <laughs> mm. that's the natural, it's one of the natural outcomes of believing that the kingdom of God has truly arrived. so easy to poke holes in it because mm. if I were to just give away everything right now, mm. would I really have a better life? Yeah, I guess depends on your definition of better. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Is that what Jesus says at the end of his um, musings about the ravens and stuff? Sell everything, give to the poor. Correct. Does he say everything? Sell your possessions. Sell your possessions. And give to the poor. You know, Jesus often taught through riddles yeah. and hyperbole. Yeah exaggerated statements that shake you awake, right? force you to think about a new reality. Yeah. His whole mission was funded by generous people who didn't sell everything and give to the poor. <laughs> <laughs> right. They were, they had, they had Jesus and the disciples on payroll. Yeah. Right. In Luke 8. Remember that group of women? Okay with that. that. group of women we talked about yeah. that are mentioned in Luke yeah, 8. Yeah, the, the patrons. These wealthy women. Yeah. Who funded the Jesus mission. Yeah. Up in Galilee. That's so cool. It's totally cool to think about. Yeah. So they didn't sell everything. Yeah. And there's the guy who basically funded Luke to write, yeah. write gospels and the yeah, acts. Yeah, totally. Right? Who owned the upper room where the Last Supper <laughs> took place. There was yeah. some yeah. property owner in Jerusalem proper. Right. I mean, that's it was, it's expensive now and it was expensive back then. Yeah. So, however, Jesus still wanted to get in your face and really push the issue and shake your value system to the core. Yeah. Keeps, it really makes you go like, yeah, why am I keeping this? If you are going to keep some possessions. Yeah. Why are you keeping it? Why? What are you keeping it for? Yep. So Abraham, his family, and the land are God's gift to the fam- to the Israelites. Yeah. And that's the whole portrait of it in every generation is it's God's generosity, just like in Genesis 1. It's God's generosity now to the family of Abraham. So I'm going to give you the land. And then he says to Isaac, Abraham's son, I'm going to give you and your descendants the land. Keeps passing on. Yeah. They end up exiled in Egypt for a long time, Mm -hmm. many generations. But then finally, um, God liberates them from the oppressive powers of Egypt to bring them into their own land. And actually, the the story of Egypt is very important because it's a portrait it's like the super Babylon. Mm-hmm. And Egypt represents a group of people who, instead of trusting that if we give these immigrants mm. their own responsibility and share in the resources of Egypt, we'll all be better off. We'll all be better off. Instead, what he says is, oh, here's an ethnic group yeah. that's becoming more big. powerful, yeah. and they're a threat to our power and yeah. safety. Yeah. And so he scapegoats them and then begins to enslave and, and kill them. And so that becomes. Once again, an Uber Babylon. Yeah, Uber Babylon. Yeah. It's another human response to the gift, which is to be fruitful and multiply. And mm. then the Israelites do. And then here's what humans do with it they try and destroy it because it feels threatening to them. And so uh, Egypt and slavery in Egypt and the lack of ability to own 
land mm-hmm. or to have your own place and land mm-hmm. is becomes the anti-God thing, mm-hmm. the anti-generosity thing. Mm-hmm. Slavery is an anti-generosity. Correct. Yes. Yeah. In a way. Mm-hmm. At a systemic level, this, especially. This person doesn't deserve to have their own place in the world and generate and be productive on their own terms. They have to do it in service to me and for my benefit. It's so interesting. The Bible doesn't come right out and like say slavery is bad. Mm. In fact, like in the, you know, Paul's kind of like, hey, mm-hmm. slaves, obey your masters. Mm-hmm. But you get this crazy indictment oh. of slavery. Oh, It's like the fundamental, one of the fundamental portraits of God in the Hebrew scriptures is of crushing the slave owner and yeah. liberating the slave. Yeah. Yes. It's yeah. right there. It's crazy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> These are not the stories being emphasized. <laughs> when you're trying to colonize the world. <laughs> when you're trying to colonize the world. Yeah. Nope. You'll go to stories in the New Testament. Yeah. Or You'll find a way around The verses in Paul, take them out of context, and then justify. But it's, it's hindsight. It's 2020, right? If slavery is as woven into your society as electricity is to ours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you talk against it or how do you yeah. disrupt it? Yeah. It took, it took centuries. Yeah. And, and it's still a reality. It's still in a reality. cultures today. Yeah. yeah, totally. But your point's a good one. Slavery in the, in the Bible is depicted as a compromised, ultimately oppressive and anti-God, hmm. anti-human institution. So Abraham's family is in Egypt. They're slaves. Yeah. God gives another gift of generosity. Yes. And yes. rescuing them from slavery and That's then right. giving them the land. Giving them the land. Totally. So let me just, two passages out of Deuteronomy okay. that just summarize the, the generosity theme. This is on page seven. So one is in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 11, starting in verse eight. Moses says to the Israelites, this is after the Ten Commandments and all this. Keep all the commands that I'm commanding you today, this, the covenant stipulations between mm-hmm. God and Israel, mm-hmm. so that you may be strong, go in and possess the land, have long days on the land, which the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them. Mm-hmm. There it is again, the gift the of gift. the land. A land flowing with milk and honey. A generous gift. Yes, cows and bees. An abundant gift. Yeah. <laughs> milk and honey is cows and bees. Yeah. Mm, let's just think about how Eden-like the mm. land is. Mm-hmm. The land you're entering to possess, it's not like Egypt, where you came from, where you had to sow seed and then water it with your feet like a vegetable garden. This is, water with your feet? <laughs> totally. This is like, uh, it, it's describing farming in the Nile Deltas. Oh, because you're just trudging around. All, and irrigation. Oh. It's all about foot pumps yeah. and irrigation and moving water around. Got it. Flat. Got it. Completely flat land. Yeah. Verse 11, but the land you're crossing in to possess it, it's a land of hills mm-hmm. and valleys. And so how do you water? How do you uh, get water? It waters itself. Drinks water from the rain of heaven. Mm. So that means the land's productivity is also a gift. Is also a gift. It's a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are on it from the beginning the Rashids, the same the first beginning. word of Genesis 1, mm. <laughs> wink, wink, to the end of the year. It will come about if you listen and obey my commands that I'm giving you. Love Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. He'll give you the rain mm. for your land, mm. the early rain, the late rain that you may gather the grain. Yeah. This is the portrait. The land's a gift. Yeah, and it's uh, going to produce. It's going to be abundant. But notice here now, similar to Eden, mm. similar and dissimilar to Eden, Obedience to God's wisdom mm. and his definitions of good and evil yeah. 
that in the garden were embodied by the tree. Here it's embodied by the Torah. Mm -hmm. And your ability to flourish in the land is completely dependent Mm. on submitting to God's wisdom about good and evil. So fast forward to us in this story. Mm. What's the test? What's the, um, yes, I put this before you. Yeah. yeah, Don't, don't choose to define good and evil yourself. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, as you walk into the laws in this section of Deuteronomy, yeah, what most of the laws are going to be about is about economics, mm. <laughs> economic relationships. You get laws that are all about every seven years, mm. all debts are forgiven. Yeah. What's that? It's a bad economy. Or that's a bad, bad yeah. economic system if you want to gain it, a lot of power. It, at least in a modern in, in modern versions of market that cap- would screw up capitalism. capitalism yeah. But that's so, this is an ancient farming yeah. network of tribal farmers, right. <laughs> leagues of tribal farming <laughs> communities. Huh. And so for them, actually what the seven, every seven years, uh, you have a bad crop. And so it, it, it assumes that everybody's going to hit hard times. Mm. Everybody's going to have, right, these ups and downs of mm. years of farming. And so every seven years, we just equalize the playing field. I thought that was every 40 years. Hmm. Well, so every seven years, it's a debt release. Oh, okay. Every seven of sevens. Yeah. Every, so the, is the Jubilee year. And there, it's another debt release. Yeah. And on top of that, if anybody had to sell their land because of debt poverty, the land is restored back to its original tribal family unit. So the whole point is it's an economic system that is trying to recreate the Exodus generation coming into the promised land. Mm-hmm. It's every seven years and then every, every yeah. seven sevens, we hit the restart. Right. That's the Jubilee. Mm. It's recreating Eden mm. in the land and everybody gets a fresh, fresh restart. Yeah. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. So all these laws like that, they have all these laws about um, when you're harvesting the field mm. and you missed a row. Leave it. Leave it. Yeah. When you are beating your olive trees. Leave it for other people to come and take. Yeah, that's right. Leave it for the immigrant, the orphan, and yeah. the widow. Yeah. When you're beating your olive trees, don't maximize profit. <laughs> like, let the first beating... Be enough? You, yeah, be enough for you. Yeah. And then leave the rest for them, for uh, the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. Mm. And actually, that law ends. That law ends. It, do, it goes through with, if you miss a row, don't go back and get it. Mm. If you... Beat the trees the first time, let the immigrants and, and the orphans come do the second. When you harvest grapes, don't go over the grapes again. Mm. Leave it. And then the last line is, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That's why I command you to do this. Deuteronomy 24, 22. Mm. And the logic there. I'm doing this so we don't, you don't enslave yourselves yes. the way you were slaves in Egypt. Yes. So you, you don't maximize profit and you create opportunities for people who are in difficult life situations to work and provide for themselves. Why? Dude, we were slaves in Egypt. That's why we live like this. <laughs> because we know how this ends if we don't live generously. Correct. Yes, totally. So here, I'll just end this part with a quote from uh, uh, a book I recently read. It's so fascinating. This is on how the law codes in the, t- in the Pentateuch mm. represent a real break from ancient Near Eastern political and economic systems. Hmm. and a critique of them. <laughs> He's a rabbi and a biblical ancient Near Eastern scholar, this guy named Joshua Berman. Did We'll put the book in the show notes and then just search this guy on Amazon and read everything he's written. <laughs> this guy's un- unbelievable. Joshua so, Berman. Yeah, so he has a whole chapter on these debt release laws. Mm, okay. And he says, a key theological claim at work in these laws 
is that of God's identity as the liberator of slaves. He forms a people out of those who were deemed to be people of no standing at all by the political and economic leaders who oppressed them. The egalitarian streak in the Pentateuchal law codes. <laughs> He'll go on to explain what that means. He said, it accords with the portrayal as, of the Exodus as the prime experience of Israel's self-understanding. Indeed, no Israelite can lay claim to any greater status than another because all emanate from the Exodus, a common, seminal, liberating, and equalizing event. The notion of God's sovereignty as creator and liberator animated the biblical laws aimed at preventing Israelites from descending into the cycles of poverty and debt. He's a good writer. Yeah. <laughs> the whole book's about what he calls the egalitarian politics of the book of Deuteronomy. Ancient egalitarianism. And by egalitarianism, you mean that everyone is equal? Everyone, yeah. Mm-hmm. Every, every Israelite commoner is an equal participant. And actually, he even, he says in ancient Israelite context, which is still is a patriarchal context. Mm-hmm. But f- to say that every man in Israel is on equal ground, including the king, mm. including the priests, mm. including the prophets. Mm. There was no community living like this in the ancient Near East. Yeah. This is a direct outflow of image of God theology. And arguably, ancient Israel never really yeah. lived this way. No, even they didn't live <laughs> up to this calling. Yeah. But the experience of the Exodus and what happened at Mount Sinai, as a friend of mine puts it, was... This family sticking their fork in the light socket. <laughs> <laughs> what? Something happened to this family in human history oh. that produced it shook them up a worldview and a people with an I- set of ideals that mm. no one had ever thought or mm. talked this way before in human history. Yeah, something happened. It's very to progressive. This family. Yeah, and in the way they tell the story, in what we call the Hebrew Bible, is that they encountered the being called I Am, mm-hmm. who rescued them from. Yeah, who rescued them slavery yeah and who made known his will to them that he wants all humans to be liberated from babylon and egypt so this seems like two different ways to get at god's generosity one Mm. is that he already is hosting a party Mm. that you know the eden thing Mm. but the other one is we find ourselves as slaves yeah and this generous god Mm. rescued us Mm. and now that should form the mm. way we just think about yeah. how to live in the world yeah. as rescued slaves. Mm. Are those two ideas connected? I, yeah, I think they actually, I think the biblical story assumes the post-Eden reality. Okay. How did we get here? Who are we yeah. and how did we get here? Yeah. Well, first of all, know who you are. You were not made ultimately to live in post-Eden reality. You're mm. made to be glorious co-rulers who share in the divine life, ruling over an abundant world of life and beauty and goodness. That's what you're made for. Mm -hmm. And that's why you're so bothered (laughs) living in a world that's not like that. Mm. So here's Genesis 3 to 11. Here's how we got here. Mm -hmm. And then Genesis 12, Abraham and forward. Here's what God has been up to in history to recreate an even greater Eden for the human family. And it begins with Abraham coming out of Babylon and then Israel coming out of Egypt is uh, another moment. And here, the way Joshua Berman talks about it, it was the seminal moment. Seminal. Oh, yeah. In terms of Israel's self-identity. Yeah. Correct. But shouldn't their self-identity go back to Eden and the fact that 
they were created as co-rulers who need to trust God, not that they were mm-hmm. just strictly rescued as slaves. Well, but in a way, the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob living in the land mm. and having to trust God but doing fine there, that becomes the Eden part of Israel's story. Oh. God gave the gift of the land to our ancestors, mm-hmm. and there was enough. Mm. They had to trust, and there mm. were many tests. Yeah. But they had to trust, and God provided and blessed them mm. in the land of Canaan. Mm. Then we had, were exiled from the land of Canaan, suffering in Egypt, but now we have the chance to go back to Eden and then of course, when they finally get there, they do what the first humans did to Eden, which is mm. screw, which is screw it all up. Mm-hmm. So I think it, those two go together. Mm. We're made for Eden-like creation, and that's where the story is ultimately going. But every human that reads the Bible is waking up and not Eden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. How'd we get here? And what is God doing in history to get us back to uh, a creation permeated with God's life? And you get to Jesus, and he's talking like it mm. started. It's like here. Y- you... Yeah. Eden's arrived. Eden's arrived. Touchdown. He he calls it the kingdom of God. Yeah. Exactly. So here, we're going to do a quick jump that's skipping most of the Old Testament. Yeah. Which (laughs) is not typically what you like to do. Yeah, no. But so the the Exodus and the laws are trying to set you up for another opportunity for Israel to go in the land and experience some form of an Eden-like existence in the land. Mm -hmm. And you read the stories, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings... They don't do it. Yeah. They just create another Babylon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they create a metaphorical Babylon in Israel, and then they end up in literal Babylon in another exile. And so the whole story is, again, of squandered generosity. Hmm. And so both for all humanity and now for the family that God chose to spread blessing to the world, what's going to happen now? <laughs> yeah. uh, and that leads us right to the doorstep of, of the story of Jesus announcing the the kingdom of God has arrived. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Bible Project Podcast. We've got one more episode covering the topic of generosity and abundance in the Bible. So as our custom, we'll then host a question and response episode. So if you've got any questions that have come up through this series, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us your questions to info at jointhebibleproject.com. And if you're able to keep the question to about 20 seconds, let us know your name and where you're from. That would be perfect. Again, it's info at jointhebibleproject.com. Today's show is produced by Dan Gummel. Our theme music is by the band Tents. As we've talked about generosity the past few weeks, we want you to know how extremely grateful we are for you. You've been incredibly generous to this project, to us, to the whole team here who are making these videos. And we want to be generous in response. We believe that this is a movement of generosity. So whether that's been helping us fund new videos by sharing what's going on here, praying for us, we want to know, we want you to know how grateful we are for you. The Bible Project is a crowdfunded nonprofit and we're in Portland, Oregon, and all of our resources are free because of the generosity of people like you. So thanks for being a part of this with us. Hi, I'm Rebecca from Waco, Texas. My family and I have loved the Bible Project for years. We enjoy watching the videos together. The art and complex ideas made simple are so masterfully done. And I personally have used the Bible reading plan and I so appreciate the way themes and threads are woven throughout scripture. Um, They come alive thanks to the conversations Tim and John have on the podcast. We believe the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. We're a crowdfunded project 
by people like me. Find free videos, study notes, podcasts, and more at thebibleproject.com. Yes. Phenomenal. Whatever. (laughs) That was fun.